on in and find a place to grab a seat. We've been looking the last few weeks at the book of Acts, and many of you will remember that the main character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. Um, We looked at how Jesus gave the church an assignment to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he knew that the disciples weren't going to be able to do that in their own strength. There was no way they could do what God had called them to do in their own strength. So he sent them to the upper room to wait for the Holy Spirit. They went, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see that when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, the disciples are also filled with boldness. We see Peter and John go and lay hands on a lame man who was healed last week. We looked at that. Then they're preaching with boldness and the church is growing. This is the church in its infancy. We learned that not only could the disciples not go do what God had called them to do in their own strength, but we can't do what God has called us to do in our own strength. We can't walk this walk of strength somehow in our own strength. We're not strong enough, disciplined enough. We need the Holy Spirit in our life. Amen? This is the church in its infancy. The church is also under persecution. And when they're under persecution, they scatter from Jerusalem, and they start to, some of them were literally running for their lives. A couple chapters later, we see that the, in, in Acts chapter 7, we see the church loses one of its greatest preachers, Stephen. He was one of the best preachers that the church had at the time. Stephen is preaching the gospel. While he's preaching the gospel, he actually gets stoned to death for that message. The message that he preached was a good message, and it was compelling. But those who heard it picked up stones and began to stone him rather than surrendering their life to Jesus. Today we're going to move ahead to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is where we meet a man named Saul. Actually, the first place we meet him is back in Acts 7, 58. When Stephen is being stoned to death, Paul is complicit in the murder to Stephen. He's holding the coats of the men that are stoning Stephen. This is the kind of guy that Saul is. Saul hates Christians. He wants to wipe Christians off the face of the earth, and he thinks he can do it single-handedly. He's out killing and persecuting Christians. That's who Paul is. Some of us have kind of a a low-key testimony. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family, and you hardly remember a day where you didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And if if that's your testimony, I think that's awesome. It's an awesome testimony about what can happen when God gets into a family tree and impacts a family, and your life was preserved by God. I think that's a great testimony. Saul's testimony is a little bit different than that. Saul has one of the most dramatic testimonies, one of the most dramatic conversions of anybody who has ever lived. Saul is considered someone who is basically unreachable for the gospel. Saul is like so far from God, so not interested in God. He's literally trying to wipe Christians off the face of the earth, and then he meets Jesus. It's my hope and prayer this morning that some of those people in your life who you look at and you think those people are too far from God, those people are unreachable, those people are so not interested in the things of God, that you would begin to feel a little bit differently about them this morning. That under the influence of the Holy Spirit in this place today, you would begin to have hope again for those people in your life that seem too far gone. We're going to read a lot of Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're going to start in verse chapter 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats 
against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and when he says the way, that's a derogatory term that people use to describe the church, people who had given their lives to church. They talked about people on the way in a negative way. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom, you're, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into this city, and you will be told what you must do. So everything just changed for Saul. Saul goes from mocking Christians for saying that Jesus had risen from the dead to meeting Jesus face to face. And Paul's like, maybe I'm on the wrong side of this thing. Like I told everyone that this Jesus didn't raise from the dead, but I just talked to him. I just saw him with my own eyes and heard him with my own ears. I think possibly I'm on the wrong side of this thing. And Saul's life is turned completely upside down. He goes from persecuting Christians and murdering Christians to becoming a Christian himself. Paul's world is so shook up in this moment, he doesn't eat anything for three days. He doesn't drink anything for three days. He's just laid up, and I believe the Holy Spirit was working inside of Paul's mind, changing a whole lifelong worth of, of lessons that he had learned and things that he believed and showing him the truth. Saul spent his life studying the law, but he just met grace in the man of Jesus. Let's keep reading in chapter 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, saying, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. That street, as it turns out, is still there today. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So here we have Ananias, and Ananias is God's servant. And God says to him, Ananias, I want you to go and lay hands on Saul and restore his sight. And Ananias is like, God, like I want to serve you, but what you're asking is a little crazy. Like, I've heard about this guy, Saul. I've heard about what he does to Christians. I don't think I can go there and pray for him. Like, are you out of your mind? Like, maybe you got confused. Maybe you said Saul, but maybe you meant another name. Like, there's no way I can go pray for this guy. I think most of us would look at this position that Ananias took, and we would say he was making a wise decision. 
We would say he was making a prudent decision by saying, God, like, I, I don't know if I can go and do this. Most of us have a, a pretty low threshold for allowing people to sin against us. In fact, the truth is, most of us don't even have much threshold for allowing people to interrupt our lives. It's like we have our own stuff going on and, and we are, we're doing our own thing and we don't even really want to give people the time to interrupt us in our day, let alone have people sin against us. So we would say that Ananias was like taking a pretty wise position here. But Ananias wants to be obedient to God and so he goes and he lay hands on Saul. There was a, a famous missionary, his name was Jim Elliott. Maybe some of you have, have heard of him. Him and five friends, they graduated from college together, and they wanted to be used by God, and they wanted to be, be missionaries. And they had heard about this tribe in South America that was said to be the most violent tribe on the face of the earth. So they decided, and they felt like God was calling them to go to this tribe and to minister to them. So he went, and they tried to build a relationship with this tribe, but they weren't able to. And eventually, one day, they just said, you know what, we're going to go, and we're going to tell them about Jesus. So they went, and they approached the tribe, and the tribe killed all five men. All five men lost their lives that day. Five husbands and dads were dead. This tribe was so violent that the families couldn't even get the bodies back to have a funeral, and the U.S. government had to send in the military to retrieve the bodies of these men so they could have a funeral. So they came back to the U.S., and they had a funeral. And the world was shocked when later that year, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, packed up her family and went back to that same tribe to minister to them. Like most people would look at us and we'd be like, don't do it. Like you're being crazy. Like why would you take the chance? They killed your husband and these other four guys. Like don't you know you're probably going to be next? Like don't do that. We think with such self-preservation. But Elizabeth set aside her right to be angry. She set aside her unforgiveness. She set it all aside. She packed her kids and went back to the same tribe. The first person to accept Christ in that tribe was the chief of the tribe. He said, when I killed your husband, I knew that there was something different about him. I knew that he was a holy man after I had killed him. He said, what kind of love is this that you have in your heart that you would come back to us after we killed your husbands? Whoever your God is, we want to give our lives to him and follow him because that kind of love, they've never seen that kind of love before. That's the heart that Ananias has here. He knows he could potentially be walking into a storm with Saul, but he still says, God, if that's what you want me to do, then that's a risk I'm willing to take. Verse 17, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. In that day, believers would greet each other by calling each other brother or sister, implying that we all had the same father and we were all a part of the family of God. So when Ananias greets Saul, he gave him that title of brother Saul. He was saying, you're a part of the family. I, I accept you. He says, I see you as God says you are, not as I know you used to be. It's amazing. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, we see that there's this job that God is calling Saul to do, but he can't do it on his own. He must first be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. 
He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Uh, At once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief of priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by providing by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of this plan. Day and night they kept close watch over the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church through Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Paul was converted suddenly, but there was the planting and watering of seeds that happened in his life over time. He had watched Christianity grow and gain in influence. He even watched Stephen preach this message. Saul didn't respond to God's nudges, so eventually God had to knock him down to get his intention. I would encourage you today, if you're here and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, it's much better to respond to the gentle nudges of the Lord than to back him into a corner where he has to knock us down. So maybe today might be the day for one of you who's here that you would surrender your life to Jesus. There's three things that, um, that I felt like God um, spoke to me that he wanted to share with you who are here this morning. This is actually the third sermon I wrote on this chapter of Acts. And these three things that I felt like God spoke to me, he spoke to me in the middle of the night, he woke me up, I couldn't sleep, so finally I got a pen and paper and and wrote down what God wanted to share with you guys today. The first thing that I felt like God wanted you to know is that Jesus is connected to his people. Um, We see this when Saul is knocked down and, and Saul says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you have been persecuting. Now what's interesting about that is Jesus himself wasn't on earth. Jesus himself was not being persecuted. The disciples were being persecuted. So what this tells us is when we are persecuted, when we go through hard things, Jesus feels the hard things that we go through. In the world that we live in, there are times that we feel far from God. There's times we feel detached from God. Sometimes we wonder, like, God, do you even see what I'm going through? Do you see this stuff going on in my life? And do you even care? Because if you see it and you're not doing anything about it, then it certainly seems like you don't care. What God wants you to know this morning is that he sees the stuff that you're going through. He sees the challenges of your life, and he deeply cares. There's no blow that's struck here on earth that goes unfelt in heaven. When we struggle, when we go through pain, 
God feels the pain that we go through and he cares. The problem is that God doesn't deal oftentimes with the situations of our life in the way that we think that he should. He doesn't do what we wish he would do in the moment. And we need to remember that God sees our life in the world from a much, much higher perspective. And if we could step back from the pain that we feel in the moment and look at our lives, we would probably be pretty grateful that God doesn't handle things the way that we handle things. Because in reality, we make a mess sometimes, right? Like we screw up, we do stupid stuff. Someone hurts us and we, we're like ready to like pick up a rock and throw it at them, right? Like thank God that he doesn't deal with people the way that we would. Like he is much more gracious and kind than we are. So the first thing that I felt like God wanted us to know this morning is that he is much more connected to us than we realize. And he feels pain in this life when we feel pain. He feels what we're going through. The second thing that I felt like God wanted to speak to us is if God can save Saul, then there's hope for everyone. If God can save Saul and bring about such a transformation in his life that he wasn't even recognizable anymore and they had to change his name from Saul to Paul because he was so different, then there is hope for everyone. First of all, there's hope for anyone who doesn't yet know Christ. Probably most of us have someone in our life that we're aware of that we look at and we're like, I know everything is possible for God, but that person seems like a very, very, very unlikely convert. Like that person seems so far from God. They seem so disinterested in God. Like that person seems basically unreachable. That person is not unreachable. And the, Saul, the story of Saul turning to Paul shows us that. If you've been at Family Life Church for any time at all, you've probably heard my father share the story of how his father came to Christ. And my grandfather was a very unlikely convert. Like that guy was far from God. He wasn't interested in the things of God. He hated Christians. He didn't want anything to do with Christians. So much so that he knocked out the first guy that tried to come and tell him about God. Like kind of an unlikely conversion. But even George Lonneville was not outside of God's reach. And there are people in your life that you've looked at and you feel like, I don't know if there's any hope for that person. And God wants you to hear this morning, there is hope for that person. In fact, I want you to picture that person right now. Somebody who you feel like, man, I don't see any way. I want you to picture that person. I also want you to say out loud, there's still hope. There's still hope. Let faith arise in your heart this morning that that person is still reachable. They're not done. God's not done with them yet. And God still can reach that person. There's still hope for that person. Not only is there hope for that person who seems almost unreachable, but there's also help for hope for those of us who are here this morning and still struggling. Those of us who are here this morning, we still have the remnants of sin in our life. We have scars from sin in our life. Those of us who are here this morning and are still tempted to sin in some specific way right now, there's still hope for us. Paul is this crazy mix of like super religious person. He's like a Pharisee, but then he's also a murderer. It's like this really strange mix. Sometimes in life it almost seems like there's more hope for God reaching the murderer than the, than the Pharisee, than the super religious person. But wherever you find yourself on that spectrum today, Paul's life speaks to us and says, there is still hope for us and God can reach us. 
For those of you who are, who are wrapped up in shame this morning, who feel like you're having a hard time getting past sin in your life, who look at yourself and you wonder, can God even use me? Like, would he even be able to fix my brokenness even if I let him? Could he even do it? For those of you this morning, there's a couple verses that Paul wrote that speaks to us. This is in 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So this is a, a saying you can trust and you should fully adopt this into your life. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, that Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who have received me at Family Life Church. Paul's life, the mercy that was extended to Paul, was there as an example to show you and I that we are not so broken that God can't fix us. We're not so messed up and so scarred that he can't still find usefulness in us. Paul went through this, um, this progression after he gave his life to the Lord. In the beginning, Paul said this. He said, I am the least among the apostles, which is kind of a weird, like, humble brag. Like, I don't even really totally know what Paul was saying there. So it's like, he's saying, I didn't walk with Jesus, so I can't be a part of the twelve but I'm like number 13. Like I'm still like pretty good is like kind of how I take like what Paul was saying. Like maybe not as good as Peter and John, but I'm a close second, you know, kind of a thing. He saw himself in that way. But then later in Paul's life, after a few years, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. So he starts to see himself in a different way. It's like he could see the sin in his life and how bad it really was and how far he was for, from God. But then when Paul's at the end of his life, he writes 1 Timothy and he says, if you line up all the sinners on the planet, I was the worst among him. So it's like he saw himself here and then here and then way down here. And he realized in reality, he was so far from God. And what the cross accomplished was so much bigger and more powerful than he even realized it was when he first accepted Christ. Like he saw himself as the least of the apostles but by the end he's like i'm the worst of the worst he saw himself as horrible but not so that he would feel bad about himself just so he could boast in what god was able to accomplish in his life it's amazing this is one of the most fascinating stories in the bible but it's also one of the most fragile times in church history and we kind of gloss by it and don't really pay attention to the details so i want to break it down for you a little bit this morning so we can see what's happening here we have the disciples who walked with Jesus, the twelve. They walked with Jesus. They were with him day in and day out. They spent so much time with him. They listened to all of his teachings. They watched him do miracles. They watched him cast out demons. They saw all this stuff. And their perspective is like, we want to keep this message pure. It wasn't necessarily from a position of pride, like we think we're better than everybody, but they wanted to make sure that the message of the gospel stayed pure and it stayed true then the disciples we kind of lost a couple disciples along the way the church is in this place that's kind of fragile and god says i want to bring along somebody to help in this mission so god hand selects paul and says i want to bring him on the team it's like he brings in a new cleanup hitter right so paul is like this gifted dude he has all this potential god brings him along and the disciples are kind of looking at paul like I don't know, like, 
Are you sure this is a guy you want to bring on the team? Like, we walked with Jesus. We talked with Jesus. We broke bread. Like, remember, like, we took the bread and broke it and it kept multiplying. Like, we know our stuff, but this guy had a supposed vision. Like, I don't know about, I don't know about him. Like, that's quite a hurdle to getting the disciples and Paul on the same team, moving in the same direction to see this vision accomplished. Like, that's a big hurdle and a big challenge for the disciples and Paul to deal with. But then that hurdle becomes like a giant wall that's insurmountable when the guy that God hand-selects is the guy who's got more Christian blood on his hand than anybody else on the planet. Like, the guy that God picked was the guy who had killed more Christians than anyone. Like, this seems almost impossible at this time for these guys to get on the same page. But then the disciples take a huge leap of faith. Saul goes from, he has this revelation. He goes through this transformation. Paul is going to become this incredible theologian. He writes most of the New Testament, but all of that is hanging in the balance because the disciples don't trust him. Paul comes to the church. He wants to be accepted by the church. He wants to be accepted by the church leadership. He wants them to bring them in. And the church leadership says no. They say no, we don't accept him. We're not bringing him in. But then these two words come in. But Barnabas. We all need a Barnabas in our life. Without Barnabas, like the majority of the New Testament wouldn't even be there if Barnabas didn't come and say, look, I'm going to bring Paul in. He takes Paul and he brings him. And he brings him to the apostles. And he starts telling the apostles what happened in Paul's life. He tells them about his conversion. He tells them about him ministering in Damascus. He brings him in and makes him a part. Paul, or Barnabas is a really interesting guy. We don't actually see a whole lot about Barnabas in the Bible. But what we do see here is he's kind of like a behind-the-scenes encourager. Barnabas has a gift of seeing past people's sin, past people, who people are right now, and he has a gift for seeing who God wants to make them to be. The disciples were doing something that today we call freeze-framing. And we're all guilty of freeze-framing. Freeze-framing is when you take a snapshot of someone in their life, most of the time in their worst moments, and then we label them and define them by what they did in that moment. We say things like, he's a cheater, she's a drunk, he's an addict, she's a crappy dad. Nope, she's a crap, well, maybe. Um, (laughs) He's a thief, she's depressed. We label people by these things, and we freeze frame the way that we look at them in that moment, and we say, that is who they are, and we define them by that thing. That's what the disciples were doing with Saul, is they were looking at Saul, and they were saying, this is who he is. He's a murderer. He was killing Christians, and we don't trust him. But Barnabas, who was able to look past who Saul was, and see who God was making Paul to be, brought him in. We actually see this another time in the Bible. This isn't actually the only time that we see this with Barnabas. There's another time where the disciples are together, and they come up against some persecution, and things got really tough for them. And there was uh, Paul was there, 
Barnabas was there, and then there was this young Christian, his name was John Mark, and they had been bringing him along, and he had been becoming a follower of Christ. And when stuff got dicey, when stuff got bad, when they came up against persecution, John Mark bailed. He was like, it's too, too much, like I can't deal with it, and he walked away. He bailed on the disciples, and he bailed on the Lord. So then Barnabas is like, I want to bring John Mark back with us. And Paul's like, no, I don't want him to come with us. Where I'm going, what I have to do for Christ, I need people that are going to roll with me that I can trust. And I can't trust John Mark because he just bailed on us. So I don't want him coming with me. And Barnabas and Paul actually get in a fight over this. And Barnabas and Paul split ways. Paul goes to try and advance the kingdom of God where he's going. Barnabas goes and he actually takes John Mark with him. He, said, he looks at John Mark and he picks him up and he dusts him off and he says, like, look, man, I know you screwed up, but I still have hope for you. I still see potential in you. I still believe God can use you. And then we see later in Paul's life when he's writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor who he's writing to encourage. It's near the end of Paul's life. He says, hey, tell Barnabas to bring John Mark, John Mark back to come and see me because it would be good for us. He's saying, I see value in him. So we see in that situation that when Barnabas and Saul split and Paul split over this, John Mark stayed with Barnabas, and John Mark actually became a faithful man. And later in Paul's life, he says, bring him back to me. We would have never been able to see what happened in John Mark's life. He wouldn't have become faithful if Barnabas wouldn't have picked him up and dusted him off and said, you know what, I still have hope for this guy. Family Life Church, I believe that God wants to make us a bunch of people that are like Barnabas. People who are like long-suffering with people. Long-suffering leader makers who say, you know what, we're not going to bail on these people because they screwed up, because they dropped the ball, because they have sin in their life, because they fell short. So you know what, I'm going to see past that stuff to see who God is making them to be. Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit and it looked like them laying hands on people and seeing them healed. It looked like them preaching with boldness. Barnabas was filled with the Holy Spirit and it looked like him putting his arm around Paul when no one else wanted to accept, accept him. It looked like him putting his arm around John Mark when Paul bailed on him and, and threw him to the curb and said, I'm not going to bail on him. The Holy Spirit in our lives might look different in different people's lives. And sometimes I think people are a little freaked out by the Holy Spirit and they've seen some things and they're like, I don't really know what to make of this. And so because of that, they end up not receiving the Holy Spirit in their life and they end up not walking in victory and not accomplishing what Jesus has called them to accomplish. As I said last week, you cannot do what God has called you to do in your life without being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to fall. You don't have the strength in, your, in yourself. You need the Holy Spirit. And for you, that might look like preaching with boldness or it might look like putting your arm around someone who just failed and is struggling and saying, look, I still have hope for you. I still believe that God can find a way to use you. When I was 18, I went to Elam and I was trying to answer the call of God in my life. I felt like God had called me to do something and I wanted to do it and I wanted to say yes to him, but I was also like failing in my efforts to do that like all the time. I was struggling, like I was trying to say yes to God, but I was also still struggling. And I had gotten in a little bit of trouble at Elam a couple times and had kind of been seen as someone who was struggling. And there was a man who was at Elam, his, 
His name was Stacy Klein. He passed away this last year. And he became like a Barnabas in my life. He would come and he would find me when I would, have, would screw up or I would fall and I was discouraged. And he would say, like, let's dust you off. Let's pick you up. You can do this. We're not going to quit. We're going to keep moving on to what God called you to. Well, it was just one Friday night and some friends of mine were going to do something. And so I went with them. We went out and we had split up into two groups and I was going with some guys to get some food and these other guys were going to go do something and um, those guys ended up doing something stupid. They ended up doing something that was not such a good thing. It wasn't like the worst thing in the world, but it certainly was not what they were supposed to be doing that night, and it certainly wasn't the best thing in the world. So uh, we went and got food, and we came back, we found the other guys, and they like, told us what happened, and we kind of laughed a little bit, and we're like, well, that wasn't really good. Probably shouldn't have done that. And then we went back to campus and kind of thought that was the end of it. Well, we went through the rest of the weekend and nothing came of it. And then Monday morning I was in class and um, the dean of men came and he like looked in the class and he like went like this to me. So I went out and went with him and we went to his office. And he tore me up for what happened. Like, I mean, he lit into me. And I was, he kept saying, this is unbecoming of somebody who's in training for ministry. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of aware of that. So I was like trying to get a word in to tell him, like I didn't actually do the thing that he thought I did. I was there i mean i was within 200 yards of the people who did the thing but i didn't actually do it myself i didn't even know it was happening at the time but i couldn't really get a word in he kept saying this is unbecoming of someone who's in training for a ministry and i'm like okay i heard that the first time so eventually he says to me i kind of had my head down and i was just sitting there listening to him because i couldn't really get a word in eventually he says you know what i don't think this is working out i think it's best if you went back to your room and packed your bags and i kind of looked up and i was like are you kicking me out and he said, yeah, you need to go pack your bags. It's like, oh my goodness, like, I didn't really do the thing, and I'm trying to tell you I didn't do the thing, but I don't really get to tell you that, and now you just kicked me out. So I'm like, all right. So I leave, and I'm headed back to my room, and I, I was staying on the fourth floor of this building, and there's like these long staircases, and I'm walking up these staircases, and I'm just like, why did I even come here? Like, why did I even try to come do what God wanted me to do? Like, I screwed up so bad. My parents went to this school. I'm going to have to tell them I just got kicked out. My grandfather was the president here, and I just got kicked out. Like, this is not good. Like, this, I knew I should have gone and done something else with my life. Like, I would have been better swinging a hammer or doing something like that. Like, this is crazy. Why did I even come here? So I go back to my room, and my roommate's in there, and he's like, why did he call you out of class? And I told him, and my roommate was one of the ones that actually did do the stupid thing that they weren't supposed to do. And he's like, well, if you got kicked out, I'm definitely getting kicked out. So... I'm sitting there and I start packing up my stuff and the phone rings and it was Stacy Klein. He was the dean of students at the time. So I figured he had heard what happened and was calling to talk to me about it. And so he asked how I was doing and I said, oh, I'm doing all right considering the situation. And he said, what situation? I said, well, you didn't hear? And he's like, no, I've been gone all weekend. I was at a um, marriage conference speaking. I said, oh, well, I just got kicked out. And he's like, what? Why did you get kicked out? And so I Kind of started to tell him a little bit, and he's like, all right, hold on. He said, I'm driving back onto campus. Can you meet me at my office? So I said, sure. So I headed down to his office, and I went there, and I walked in, and the dean of men was there, and I was like, oh, great, him again. We're going to have to do this. I'm unbecoming again. Okay, I get it. So I sit down, and I just kind of had my head down, and he said, so what happened? I said, do you want me to tell you, or do you want him to tell you? He said, you tell me. So I told him what happened, and then we just sat there kind of quiet for a while. And he goes, so you didn't actually do the thing? And I said, no. He said, you weren't even there when the thing got done? I said, no, I wasn't there. And you didn't know they were doing it? No, I didn't do it. And then he was just quiet for a second. And then he looked over towards the dean of men, and he said, maybe I ought to kick you out of here. 
And I'm like, now we're talking. <laughs> this was unbecoming of you, buddy. Um, and so he said, he said to the dean of men, he said, John is a man of God. He has a call of God in his life. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what happened here. You he made a bigger deal than it is. And he said, you know what? Why don't you go away, and I'll talk to you another time. And so he did. And then Brother Stacy came over, and he asked me to stand up, and he hugged me for what felt like way too long, more time than I was comfortable with on that hug. But he always gave long hugs. And... Um, he said, John, there's too much that God has done in your life. You've come too far to throw in the towel right now. Like, you can't quit. There's people waiting on the other side of God finishing the work that he started in your life. We can't quit. He's like, there's too, too much at stake for us to quit. You've come too far to quit. You can't go back now. You can't get away with being who you used to be. You know what God made you for. He was a Barnabas in my life. Being filled with the Holy Spirit might look like preaching with boldness, and I hope it does for some of you. It might look like talking to a coworker on your lunch break and taking a step of faith and telling them about what God has done in your life. It might look like having peace in a situation that you have no business having peace in, in a storm of life that's horrible, and somehow you walk through it with peace. It might look like being like Barnabas and putting your arm around someone who lost hope and saying, don't give up. But each one of us need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do what God has called us to do. I can't do it alone. Paul can't do it alone. Barnabas can't do it alone. John can't. Peter can't. If they can't, we can't. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do what God has called us to do. The last two sermons we preached on the Holy Spirit, we gave you an opportunity at the end to receive a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do that a little bit different this morning. I have a ministry team who can come up front and join me now. And this ministry team is going to be here to pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never received the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit before and you were a little weirded out by it, but now that you've heard a little bit about what it looked like in the apostles' life, you say, you know what? I know that I can't walk this walk alone. I need the Holy Spirit in my life. Or maybe you've already received the Holy Spirit, but this morning you would say, you know what? I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Once wasn't enough for the disciples, and once isn't enough for me. I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit today. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to close out the service. And if you feel to leave, that's totally fine. You can go ahead and do that, and we pray that you have a blessed week. But if you'd like to receive a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit this morning, I would encourage you to come up and just stand in front of one of the people on the ministry team, and they'll be able to pray for you for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this place. Lord, this church was started um, by a group of people that believed in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's going to continue by a group of people that believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want to somehow try and do this in our own strength. We don't want to try and see how disciplined we can be and try and keep try and self-help mechanisms, trying to be better, trying to learn how to cope with sin in our life. But Lord, we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit to become who you called us to be and to accomplish what you called us to accomplish. Lord, we ask you to come and fill us afresh. In your name I pray, amen. If you need to head out, you can go ahead and do that. And for the rest of you that want to receive prayer, you can come forward and stand in front of somebody who's on the ministry team this morning.